Welcome to episode 105 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's Word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to discuss the biblical perspective of a name and how that can change your life. Let's dive in. Shakespeare is famous for the quote found in Romeo and Juliet, quote, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, unquote. In other words, no matter what we call this flower, the rose, the character, the nature, and the beauty of the flower wouldn't change. It would smell just as sweet, regardless of what name you ascribe to it. But what's interesting is when you come to the scriptures, a name was significant. See, a rose by any other name, yes, it may smell just as sweet, but biblically, you can't just give any name to just anything. And the reasoning is, is a name in the Bible wasn't just a name. It showcased the character, the nature, the reputation, or one's very person. In other words, it's interesting that as you, if you ever go to Israel and you travel through the land, one of the things you should ask your guide every place you go to is, well, what did the name of this place mean? So if you go to Beersheba, what does the name Beersheba mean? Because the name of a place is significant in understanding that location. And the same thing is true about a personal name. In other words, my name is Nathan. And Nathan means a gift from God. And I thought my parents did pretty well. <laughs> but this idea of a name wasn't just a name we ascribe to somebody. It's not that we just say, well, let's name the kid Bob or Susie or Joe or Bert or Bertha or whatever. That when you gave a name to somebody, that name was a picture or it was symbolic or it was like a, a declaration of what that person's life was going to look like. In fact, you can see this all throughout scripture. For example, in the Old Testament, we had a man by the name of Abram and God dealt with Abram. And at some point in his life, here he is in the promised land. And God looks at Abram and says, Abram, no longer am I going to call you Abram. I'm going to call you Abraham. Now, you could say, well, did God not like the name Abram? No, no, no. That's not the point of the story. The point of the name change is the fact that Abraham's character, his nature and reputation was being altered and transformed by the living God. He had a wife by the name of Sarai. And God says, no longer is she going to be known as Sarai. She's now going to be known as Sarah. Perhaps my favorite story of this name change is the story of Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob. Isaac and Rebekah gets married, and, and at one point in Rebekah's life, um, she feels this something stirring within her. And so it says in Genesis that she goes to God and says, God, what's going on? And God makes this statement, well, there are two nations within your womb, and they are warring against one another. Now, if I was Rebecca, I would have been like, what? I thought these were children. Nations? How am I going to give birth to nations? Now, I'm being maybe a little melodramatic here. But it's interesting to me that what was what God was saying is that there are these two, two little children in your womb, but they are a picture of a nation that are two nations that are going to war against one another. Now, it's fascinating. When the first one is born, they look at the firstborn and they give it a name. And the name they gave the firstborn was Furball, <laughs> which is the name Esau. Esau means hairy. It means, you know, <laughs> means furball. 
And the reason they gave him the name Furball is because, well, he was hairy. In fact, do you know how hairy Esau was? This is so mind-boggling to me. But later on, as Isaac lost his eyesight, he grew old. And it looks like uh, Esau and Jacob, I think they're right around 40 years old. Isaac looks at Esau and says, hey, would you go out into the field? He's a big hunter. Would you go get my favorite game, bring it in, cook it how just how I like it, and I'm going to pronounce a blessing upon you. And so Esau goes off and starts his hunting mission. And at this time, Rebecca had heard about this. And so she goes to Jacob, who is the mama's boy, and says, hey, uh, your father's going to give Esau a blessing. So let's steal the blessing. So why don't you go grab a goat and I'll cook the goat just like your father likes it. And in the middle of all this, Jacob says, well, <laughs> but I, I don't, I, I don't look like Esau. And she's like, it's okay. Your, your father's eyes are dim. He's, he's blinded. And he's like, yeah, but what if my father asked me to come close and he puts his hand on my arm, he will immediately know that I am not Esau. And Rebecca says, well, that I have that taken care of. And she took some of the goat skin from the sacrifice that, you know, they were making this dinner for, for Isaac. And she puts the goat skin upon the arms and the neck of Jacob. And then she puts Esau's clothes upon Jacob. And of course, you know, the story, Jacob brings the meal over to his father and, and says, hi, dad, I'm here. And uh, of course, Isaac says, uh, son, uh, who are you? He goes, uh, 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 Esau. And obviously probably trying to do an imitation of Esau's voice, who's this big, hairy hunter. And Isaac says, well, come over to me. And it's interesting, as he came over, as Jacob came to Isaac, Isaac smelled the clothes of Esau and was like, well, it smells like Esau, which, by the way, is a rather disturbing thought process to me, that that there was such a smell or a a funk with uh, Esau that he was recognizable just by that smell. But interestingly, Isaac puts his hand on the arms of Jacob, which had the goat skin. And as he moved his hand up the arm and feels the goat skin, he goes, oh, it's my son Esau. Now, have you ever seen a goat? I mean, do you know how hairy goats are? I mean, they are hairy. So could you imagine, here is this baby that comes out who is a furball. And they said, well, what name are we going to give the furball? So they called him Furball or Esau. Now the second son is born and it's interesting. It says that as he was coming out of his mother's womb, that he was holding on to the heel of his brother Esau. Now, again, I can't prove this biblically, but, and I've said this for years, but my personal perspective is that I don't know whether Jacob was actually holding his heel or was Esau so hairy that Jacob was actually just caught up in the midst of all the hair and he was just kind of being dragged out (laughs) behind Esau, uh, whether he wanted to or not. Regardless, Jacob was holding the heel of Esau. And so as Jacob came out, they said, well, what name are we going to give this one? And so they named him Jacob, which means heel grabber. It means that, hey, a manipulator, a deceiver, a liar. Now it's interesting when you look at Jacob's life, as you follow his trajectory, Guess what he lived like? Guess guess what his nature and his character was? Well, he was a lying, deceiving manipulator. That he was a hill grabber. He was a Jacob. So it's amazing and beautiful to me that here's this one night, years later in his life, that he wrestles with God all throughout the night. And he says, hey, I I want a blessing from you. And and would you do something in my life? And of course, you know the story. God, you know, the, the angel that he's wrestling with touches his hip and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But at the very end of this, 
God changes Jacob's name. And he says, no longer are you going to be known as Jacob. I'm going to call you Israel. And again, it's not just because God didn't like the name Jacob. The name Jacob's great. But what's interesting is in the story, it's a demonstration or a picture of the fact that the nature, the character, the very life of Jacob was being transformed. See, God was looking at Jacob saying, no longer are you going to be a deceiving, manipulating, you know, liar that you are now going to be known as the one who wrestles with God or the prince of God. What a phenomenal reality and what a tremendous picture of the grace of God that he looks at an individual and yes, their character and their nature, their very name is that of a lying, deceiving manipulator. And yet God says, I'm going to change that. And no longer are you going to have your old nature. I'm going to give you a new nature. Therefore, you need a new name. Now, I think that is beautiful and really significant. So if you take that concept then and you come into the Old Testament specifically, now this is true in the New Testament as well, but when you come to the Old Testament, it is just amazing to me that God reveals his name. That over and over as people encounter the greatness of our God, God says, do you know who I am? And he gives them a name. And you realize it's not just a name. God is demonstrating or declaring his very character and his nature, his reputation, his life. Back in episode number 42, I, I talked about one of my all-time favorite Christophanies. And in that, it's, it's found in Exodus chapter 15. And of course, if you want the longer version of this, I would highly encourage you to listen to episode number 42. But in that, uh, here the Israelites, they leave Egypt and as they're wandering, uh, as they're in the wilderness, they're desperately needing water. And they find this little pool of water and oh, no doubt they were excited because wow, there's water. But as someone tasted the water, they found that the water was impure. It was bitter and it was not drinkable. So Moses prays on behalf of the people and God says, we'll take this tree and throw it into that bitter water. And as the tree hit the bitter water, the bitter waters became sweet, not just clean and pure, but sweet. And at the very end of of Exodus 15, God makes this phenomenal pronouncement. He says, I am Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord that heals or the God who heals. And God says, it's not just I have a name called Jehovah Rapha. He says, do you recognize that part of my character and my nature, my reputation, my very life is that I am a healer. So when you come to God and you say, whoa, you are Jehovah Rapha, we're not just saying, well, we're going to call you Bob or Bertha or Josephine or whatever, but we're really declaring his character and his nature. In Psalm 23, it says that the Lord is my shepherd and the name there is Jehovah Ra. God says, do you know what my nature is? I am the great shepherd. That his nature is that of a shepherd. His character is that of a shepherd. I love the very end of Genesis chapter 21. Uh, Abraham establishes a covenant in Beersheba with Abimelech. And this is right before God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, which I think is very significant. And at the very end of this covenant making, uh, Abraham looks at God and says, God, you are El Olam, which means the everlasting God. 
And I love that because here is Abraham declaring the very character and the nature of who God is and says, you are the everlasting God and I can trust you. And then the very next chapter, God says, all right, take your son and do you actually trust me? Will you sacrifice your son? And he was really being proven of whether or not he actually believed that God is the everlasting God, El Olam. So as you work through the Old Testament and you begin to hear these names of God, which by the way, a lot of times we don't actually have the original name. We kind of just put Lord in all caps or, you know, we say the Lord God. But if you would go back and actually look up what the names are, it is a revelation of the person and the character of who God is. And let me just give you a few of these. For example, God is El Elyon, which means the most high God. He is El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. He is Adonai, which is Lord or Master. He's Jehovah Nisi, which is the Lord my banner. He's Jehovah Ra, the Lord my shepherd, as I mentioned. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord that is there. He's Jehovah Sikkanu, which is the Lord our righteousness. He's Jehovah Mekadishkim, which is the Lord that sanctifies us. He is El Olam, the everlasting God. He is Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is our peace. He is Jehovah Sabbath, which is the Lord of hosts. And he is Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees in advance because he is the Lord that provides. Isn't that an amazing reality? That when we're talking about the names of God, we're not just saying, well, let's just give him a name. But as you begin to get into each of these names, it's a revelation of who he is. And if you follow it through, do you recognize that Jesus fulfills every name? That he is the Lord that heals. He is the ultimate healer. He is not just the Lord of peace. He is the Prince of peace. He, he's not just the God who sanctifies us. He is sanctifi- sanctification itself. And yes, he has a continual work of sanctification in our lives. That he is Jehovah Jireh. He always provides all that we need. And of course, I quote this all the time, but 2 Peter 1.3, all that you need for life and for godliness is found in Christ Jesus. Why? He is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. I've just been awestruck afresh of just the reality of God sharing his names with us because he's wanting us to get to know him, not just as this God out there in the universe somewhere, but in relationship and intimacy. And just as we share names with each other, for example, you know, when you're intimate and you have a relationship with somebody, you just naturally start giving them like fun pet names. And it's interesting if you looked at like a husband and a wife, and you just listen to how they talk, <laughs> they always use pet names. You know, for example, like muffin, pumpkin, hey, cupcakes, hey, snickerdoodle, honey, sweetheart, dear, lovey, sweetie. You know, and, and it's interesting to me that most of these are food. But but when you look at them, we have these pet names for, we have, you know, if we have a dear friend, we don't just say, hey, Bob, you know, we, we have like a, a, a term of endearment in a sense. And it's just a way of just saying, wow, you, you mean something in my life. And I love the fact that God has shared his names with us. And perhaps on the flip side, I love what Revelation 2.17 says. Uh, Jesus is talking to the church in Pergamos, and he mentions at the very end of verse 17, he says, I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one accepts him who receives it. And it's this idea that 
that Jesus has a special name for you. And I love this reality that it's like God has a pet name picked out for you. And it seems like only you and him is ever going to know about it. And granted, you may have to wait into the eternities to find out your pet name. But I love this idea that I'm going to be so wrapped up in relationship and intimacy with the living God that not only has he shared his pet names in that sense with me, and I actually get to know his character and his heart and his nature, but he says, wow, I have a special name for you that I'm only going to share with you, that you and I are going to have this relationship and intimacy, and we're going to, I'm going to be whispering your name. Oh, I just, I just think that's phenomenal. Well, take all of that, and I want to bring it to a point of application. It's interesting that here's God, and he reveals his names. And again, it's not just a name. It's a picture of his character, his nature, his life, his reputation. But it's not that just he has that. He shares that with us. Uh, for example, think, think of a marriage ceremony. And, you know, here's this young, strapping, good-looking guy, and here's this beautiful bride. And it's interesting that when you look at the marriage ceremony and the taking of the vows, in a lot of aspects, it is a funeral, which is probably why the guy wears black. <laughs> but the husband or the, the future husband looks in the, the face of his wife, the future wife, and says, honey, I just, man, I love you. And he makes this declaration and he says, you know what? I'm not going to live for myself. This is not going to be about my wants and my dreams and, and my selfishness. This is not going to be about my pleasure and, and, and what, what I declare. And, and, and hey, this is what I demand. He says, I'm going to set all of that aside. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to live for you. And I'm going to be about your wants and your dreams and your pleasure and your satisfaction. And, and I'm going to be washing your feet. And this is not going to be about me and what I deserve and what I want. Oh, I'm going to come and I'm going to serve you. And I'm just going to pour my life out for you. Now the lovely bride looks back at the groom and says, well, I'm going to do that too. In fact, I'm not going to live for myself. And this is not going to be about my wants and my dreams and my pleasure and my satisfaction and my whatever. In fact, I'm going to set all those aside. And you know what, dear, I'm going to, I'm going to pour my life out for you. I'm going to wash your feet and I'm going to live for your wants and your dreams and your pleasure and your satisfaction and your, isn't it interesting that when a husband and a wife do that and they live that out, that both of them are having their wants met. Both of them are receiving pleasure. Both of them are having their dreams fulfilled, but it's not done through selfishness. See, it's not, well, I did 50%, you do 50%. This is not, well, I hey, I did the dishes last week, you better do, the, do them this week. See, there's, there's none of that in this marriage idea because it's, hey, this is not about me, this is about you and I'm gonna pour my life out for you. And yet my dreams and, and, and my satisfaction is being met and fulfilled, but it's done selflessly. In fact, you can see this very same picture in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, when Paul says that in the church, that's how we're to live with each other. That it's not going to be about my wants and my dreams and my selfish desires, but that in humility, I'm to pour my life out for the other people in the church. Which is why the church and a marriage is a picture of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, that a husband and wife is a picture of Christ and the church. Why? Because Christ laid down everything on our behalf. And how are we to live? Well, we are to lay down everything on his behalf. See, this is not about us and what we want and what we demand. This is about him and his glory and for his praise and his adoration. So, hey, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. See, take my life, my lips, my, my hey, take everything in my life. 
And I don't want to expend it on myself. I want to pour this out upon Jesus Christ and all that he is wanting to do in and through me. So when a husband and a wife begin to live selflessly unto one another, it becomes a picture of Christ and the church. But it always amazes me that the wife takes it a step further. See, the the bride looks at the groom and says, not only am I going to live not for myself, but for you, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to forsake my name and I'm going to bear your name. So, so in my case, I'm Nathan Johnson and my future bride is going to be known as the future Mrs. Johnson. And she's going to bear my name, which you recognize is not just, well, she has my name, but she's actually taking upon herself my reputation and my, my character and my life that, that, Hey, if people hate me, suddenly they're going to hate her too. Why? Because she bears my name. And again, this is a beautiful picture of Christ and the church, because here we are, the church, which is the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, do you recognize that we are in a relationship with the groom, Jesus Christ? In fact, we're engaged. The wedding ceremony in Revelation is coming quickly. And isn't it amazing that we bear his name? We take on his name and we are known as Christians which means that we bear his likeness. We bear his character, his nature, his life. His, his reputation becomes our reputation. And Jesus says, if they hated me, guaranteed they're going to hate you. Why? Because you're going to bear my name. A good friend of mine in talking about this idea of the name of God and bearing that reality, he, he said it this way. I just want to read this to you. I just thought this was really rich. He says, the name of God is the power, the trustworthiness, and the legend of his person. To know his name is to know his true person and his glory. He said, I am is who he is. He is the creator of all, the beginning and the end, the almighty, the all-powerful, the all-wise judge of the eternals. It is this name that he bestows upon us as our inheritance. In the blood covenant that he established upon the cross, he has invited us into intimacy to become his bride and to bear his name, his likeness, his love, his fragrance, his character, his suffering, and his joy. We may bear his power and his grace, but we also must bear his sorrow and his cross. Isn't that a great statement? So here's how it applies to you. The next time as you're reading through scripture and you see someone's name, first of all, I would encourage you to go look it up because the name becomes significant and it gives great insight into the passage that you are reading. But alongside of that, recognize that God has declared who he is in his names, that he is showcasing his character and his nature and his reputation and his very life. And he wants you to bear that. He wants you to be an image bearer. He wants you to, to declare and shine forth the glory of Jesus Christ in this world. So when the world sees you, they see not you, they see him living in and through you. And they see him shining forth from your life. And they go, wow, this is like, (laughs) this is exactly who God is because they see his life reflected in you. You don't become God, but you bear the image of him and we bear his name. Well, in the next episode, I want us to ponder afresh the names of Jesus Christ 
It is going to be a rich meditation of the character, the nature, and the life of Jesus. And it will be an episode you don't want to miss. But for today, thanks for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, including a list of those names of God that I read and their meanings, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 105 for episode 105. And until next time, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.